Welcome everyone back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT. Uh, we've been doing these since the work from home period started. We've been having a lot of fun with them. For, so thanks for, for jumping on and, and joining the ride with us. Um, you know, SALT Talks are a series of digital interviews that we're doing with leading investors, innovators, and thinkers across finance, technology, and geopolitics. And just as we do it at our global conferences, we try to provide a window into the minds of subject matter experts and also provide a platform for big, important ideas that we think are changing the world. Today, we're very excited to welcome Bob Diamond to Salt Talks. Uh, Bob is the founder and CEO of Atlas Merchant Capital, which is an international financial services firm with offices in New York and London uh, that invests primarily in the financial services sector. As many of you may know, Bob was also the former CEO of Barclays Bank. Uh, today, conducting the interview will be Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investments firm. He's also the chairman of SALT. And I'll kick it over to Anthony and Bob for the interview. If you have any questions for Bob uh, during the course of the interview, in, uh, enter them at the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen uh, on the Zoom link. So, Anthony, go ahead. Hey, thanks, John. And, uh, Bob, great to be with you. Uh, for people that are not super familiar with your background, I was wondering if you could just share with us a little bit of your uh, your upbringing and how you got to be the Barclays CEO. And then we'll talk a little bit about Atlas Merchant. Happy to, although it's a, uh, it's a funny kind of a ride, but um, uh, like you, I came from a, uh, a large family, in my case, an Irish Catholic family in Massachusetts. I was one of nine children. Um, uh, I think uh, as my mom and dad were both uh, school teachers, um, uh, I always enjoyed school. Um, I went to Colby College in, in, uh, in Waterville, Maine, and I've come to be um, a huge supporter of Colby and have committed to their board for many years in appreciation of the education I've got there. But I will tell you the truth, Anthony, I went there because it was a small school and I thought I could play four more years of sports in a small school as opposed to a large university. And then I, I learned what an advantage it was to be in a small school and small classes. Um, I received my master's degree at the University of Connecticut and began my teaching career there. Um, and only when I took a few years to earn enough money to get a PhD uh, did I find myself in financial services. Um, I got a very lucky start at Morgan Stanley uh, when it was still a small private firm. I started there in the IT department, helping to build the technology that would allow Morgan Stanley to kind of evolve the way those firms did at the time from um, kind of the advisory, non-capital intensive firms to sales and trading. At the time, Morgan Stanley was chasing uh, the Goldman Sachs Solomon Brothers entree uh, into sales and trading uh, in addition to the advisory businesses. And I just must say very simply that once I got into financial services and moved from the IT area into the financial markets, um, um, I just loved uh, being a part of the financial services. Uh, my background was in the fixed income markets as a trader. Uh, I think the single best thing that happened to me career-wise was when Morgan Stanley asked me to move to London in the late 80s. Uh, and Jennifer and I, one child, and the rest of our, our other two children were born, uh, born in London. And we spent uh, over 20 years in London and Japan as I worked for Morgan Stanley and Credit Suisse uh, before we came back to the UK. Uh, and I took the role at Barclays. So um, love financial services. I love the fact that people like you and I were there in the 
period of, uh, of great developments and, and really a, a 20, 25 year bull market for financial services. The, uh, the, the, the job offer, let's go to that because I think it's fascinating for people as they're thinking about their own careers. Uh, so you were at Credit Suisse at the time where you were offered the Barclays CEO? Or, or? Yes, yes. And so, so, so take us through that if you don't want a little bit of a TikTok. You're, you're at Credit Suisse, you're in London, and I, you get called by a search firm or what happens? Yeah, a, a little bit prior to that. I think the, the, the first move was the decision to leave Morgan Stanley and join Credit Suisse. And I was with Morgan Stanley in London, 13 years, incredible um, incredible firm. It still is today and just a great culture. The opportunity with Credit Suisse was just one of those opportunities that I, I needed to respond to, which was uh, to become a member of the executive committee of uh, CSFB, Credit Suisse First Boston, uh, and to move to Asia and run the Asian region. And as you may recall, uh, CSFB in those days was organized more regionally than global products where uh, most of the U.S. bulge bracket firms, Goldman Sachs, Sol uh, Solomon Brothers, Morgan Stanley, were more organized around global products. Um, so uh, our family lived in uh, Japan for a number of years running the Asia business. Uh, I was able to be a part of the first, uh, the first ever Chinese um, uh, IPO on the New York Stock Exchange. It was a very fascinating time in the development of Asia as a, as a financial center. So the decision to, to leave there um, and join Barclays was really, if you, if you put it at its most basic, it was an opportunity to join a um, fantastic institution in Barclays, AAA credit rating, who had not had success outside of their core UK business and retail and commercial banking business. And their efforts to build their investment bank and their asset management businesses had not been successful. So it was an incredible platform with a very uh, engaging CEO and Martin Taylor uh, and an opportunity to build the investment bank and the asset management businesses, which became over years from uh, Barclays to Zoot Wed, which was a very UK-based equity broker dealer, into Barclays Capital, which was one of the top three uh, investment banks in the world. Uh, and Barclays Global Investors from the original acquisition of Wells Fargo Nego in 1996. You had a couple of interesting things go on at Barclays. So I want to I want to talk about those for a second. The, 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 the first one was during the 2008 crisis, at least the one I'm aware of, uh, you had the opportunity to purchase Lehman Brothers uh, after the September debacle. Uh, I'd love to have you address that. But didn't Barclays also sell a very large ETF uh, business to BlackRock. Yeah. So in taking you through those steps, uh, as we had talked about, the growth of Barclays Capital from 1997 and 1998 through to the financial crisis had been uh, quite substantive. It was the leading profit generator within the Barclays, frankly, as we, we were very focused and very selective on areas where we could be successful. So it was risk management, financing, capital markets, um, but we did not enter the M&A business or the cash equities business because quite frankly, as a UK-based investment bank, um, with our core market, the UK and Euro market, we did not see a chance where we could compete successfully with the US bulge bracket firms who really dominated both of those spaces. Um, we did have the opportunity in the financial crisis um, to acquire 
uh, a franchise that had those businesses, the advisory business and the cash equities business in Lehman Brothers. And as you can imagine, that opportunity first um, uh, looked like a possibility uh, probably six months to a year prior uh, to the crisis in, in, uh, in September of, of 2008, when Bear Stearns first had their challenges in their asset management business, and then Bear Stearns was rescued uh, by J.P. Morgan. And it was quite clear at that time that there could be another shoe to fall down the road. It could be other um, standalone investment banks, which would which could potentially run into some of those challenges. So one of the things that we did at Barclays is we spent a fair amount of time. Um, and I, I um, had had a call from the U.S. Treasury after the Bear Stearns rescue, uh, basically asking me if, if there was another shoe to fall, would Barclays be interested in um, uh, a role similar to the role that J.P. Morgan had played in the Bear Stearns situation? So we began thinking it through at our executive committee. Uh, we took it to our board on two or three occasions, and the conclusion was pretty clear, which is that the, the um, uh, combination of Lehman Brothers with Barclays Capital was almost too good to be true. But the question was, would you pay a big price uh, at the risk of employees leaving? Uh, in other words, have to pay twice, once to buy the business and once to keep the people. And what we recognized is that there was a, there was a transformational opportunity for Barclays to combine the strength of Barclays Capital, Europe, UK, Asia, much more around debt capital markets, derivatives, financing, with Lehman Brothers, which was one of the top two or three franchises from a client point of view in the US, and one of the top firms in M&A and, and, and in cash uh, and, and new issue uh, and derivative equities. So uh, the conclusion we made is the combination would be perfect, but it would have to be at a distressed price. Um, and of course, at that time, as you will recall as well, between the Bear Stearns uh, rescue by J.P. Morgan around Easter of 2008 and our acquisition of the U.S. broker-dealer of Lehman in September of 2008, uh, the financial markets were actually for a number of times rallying quite strongly and there was no opportunity to actually acquire Lehman or do a combination until the near collapse of the financial system in September. Uh, it, it was disclosed, but just curious, what did you end up paying for it in its dis, uh, prior to its dissolution? So the price paid, I haven't got all the exact, but it was about one and a half billion for the U.S. broker dealer. Uh, and all of the problem assets were taken out of the business because they weren't in the U.S. broker dealer. So the, the balance sheet was quite clean. It was basically uh, U.S. mortgages, U.S. treasuries, some investment grade debt. Um, one of the things that we recognized at the time was that the value of the headquarters building uh, in New York was probably worth one and a half to two billion at the time. So um, from a Barclays point of view, um, it was um, both um, a good price um, in that we're getting uh, the headquarters, but it was also a good opportunity to get just the U.S. broker dealer, where if we had acquired the full firm, we would have had a lot of overlap in Europe um, uh, and Asia. Uh, and, and it worked out. So pursuant to what your original plan was, the synthesis of the two businesses has gone remarkably well. When you say it's a decade plus later, but it's gone it's remarkably been, well. Right? Been a, it was, it's been phenomenally successful. I think the, the revenue in the first year from um, the acquisition of the Lehman's business was somewhere on the order of $10 billion. 
So, I mean, so it's a good segue to where we are now. In that crisis, there was a tremendous opportunity. You as the CEO of Barclays to see the opportunity to shed some assets, buy some others, put Barclays in a premier position here in the United States, as well as around the world. So how does that compare and contrast now to the global pandemic that we're facing both? Uh, Bob, I want you to analyze it from an economic perspective and then from an opportunistic perspective. Going back just a second to that, that was a financial crisis, which was very different than than today. And uh, it was as treacherous at the moment to spend one and a half billion dollars, even if the building was worth more. And as I as I go back, one of the lessons that that I learned from that is it was the kind of the early preparation and talk with the board that we recognized that the only way that that transaction would work is if Lehman were in distress. And that if Lehman were in distress, it would likely mean that there's bigger issues surrounding it in terms of in terms of the economy. So that we had already thought through the fact that um, no matter how bad the situation looks, this would be this would be good at a certain price. And I think that helped us during the most difficult couple of weeks, because as you will recall, within days uh, we had the uh, Merrill Lynch B of A merger, and within days we had the AIG uh, rescue. Um, I think looking today, um, you know, this is not about financial services. This is really about what is the impact of closing down an economy for what's turned out to be four months now um, uh, for all the right medical reasons, but what are the things that we can do um, to make sure that that has as little impact for as, you know, uh, over time as possible. And I think the first thing I would say about uh, today is that the, um, while the actions of the Fed uh, during the 2008 crisis, as we look back, um, were very positive and very strong. And the fiscal actions taken by the Treasury were uh, the TARP program, um, gave the U.S. financial services industry and the U.S. economy uh, a big um, uh, advantage versus Europe, uh, who didn't take that kind of action. Notwithstanding all of that, what the Fed and the Treasury have done uh, in 2020 during the pandemic, I think is is uh, just phenomenal. Uh, I think the uh, speed with which they acted um, was much faster than they had acted in 2008. Uh, I think the scale which which they have acted, which is basically as is, 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 uh, soon as late March, made a commitment that size was not an issue, that they'll be there for as much as they need to be there for. And then lastly, the breadth of the activities, not just treasuries and agency mortgages, but investment grade corporates, munis, exchange traded funds. Uh, It's been an incredible program. One of the detractors or one of the criticisms of the program, and I agree with you, by the way, I think I think they've they literally took the 2008 uh, playbook, Bob, and it was almost like a dress rehearsal for the. 2020 pandemic, but one of the deleterious side effects, or at least the critics would say, is that it's going to further widen the income gap in the United States. And by accident, because we only have one leg of the stool, we don't have a infrastructure leg or a fiscal reinvestment leg of the stool, uh, that it's helping people that have assets. And so if you own the assets and you're injecting this amount of liquidity, the assets are going up. 
uh, but the people that don't have assets, the middle aid, the middle class workers, the wage earners, lower middle class workers are, are suffering. And, and critics have suggested that the Federal Reserve has by accident created populist movements like President Trump's movement or Bernie Sanders's movement. What's your reaction to that? You know, I think, I think in the fullness of time, we can grade the Fed and the Treasury uh, with actions down the road as well. Uh, in other words, um, how does this play out over a number of years uh, in terms of the economic recovery, in terms of how we get back to more normalized level of interest rates, uh, income inequality, uh, all the things that you talk about. But if we're going to grade the Fed and the Treasury today, I think it has to be a quite impressive, at least an A minus, um, based on the actions that they took. And why do I say that? If we look at 20 million people in the United States who were employed in March are not employed in April, uh, that thing, that, that's not going to turn around quickly. And I think the actions that the Fed and the Treasury have taken have been very positive uh, in terms of uh, almost every metric we can look at. Everyone would have their um, you know, issues around specifics. Um, and I do believe that the focus has to be on jobs and will be on jobs going forward. But 20 million fewer people working is a lot of people. It was up to 22 million, came back down to 20. But if we think for a second, all of those people are going to be back in good jobs um, in 2020, that's just unrealistic. So we have a long road to hoe ahead of us. And I think the actions that they have taken have been very positive in that regard. No, I, I agree. I'm just wondering if, if there could be other actions that could potentially help away from, from, from the monetary policy. Let's talk about this merchant for a second. So you, you, you leave Barclays and you set up this uh, fund. Uh, tell people about the fund. Tell us what you're doing and where, where the opportunities are. So Atlas Merchant Capital, uh, we think of as a, as a merchant bank. Um, and um, uh, our focus uh, is primarily U.S., U.K., Europe. So if you can invest in the dollar, sterling, or euros, we're interested in those areas. Um, we're focused on financial services. Uh, we think that the uh, uh, impact of 2008 from a regulatory point of view um, created a bit of an oligopoly around the larger interconnected banks. Uh, and we believe that that three decades of financial services organizations, particularly in insurance, in banking, uh, and in uh, asset management, of becoming more global and more universal, um, has really uh, stabilized and somewhat reversed. And the opportunities we're seeing in financial services below the level of kind of the oligopoly of the large interconnected banks, which have much higher buffer upon buffer of capital, far more restrictions in terms of the regulators of their, of their growth, is creating opportunities for models that are more around um, one country or one region and models that are much more around focus and selectivity, meaning maybe it's one product. Maybe it's like Panmore Gordon, one of our investments in the, in the UK, which is focused on UK middle market businesses. Or maybe it's like Kepler Chevro, uh, a business we invested in, which is a Paris-based equity sales trading research. That's all they focus on is just that product. And I think, I think the business models have changed from global, 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 universal, 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 to much more national and regional. 
and oftentimes much more uh, around a single product or a single technology. And that competition has been has been interesting. And we've had quite, you know, we've done um, uh, four investments in in the UK and Europe, um, four in the US, two in insurance, three in broker dealers, one in asset management, one at one a uh, a technology driven bank. Um, and we see uh, significant opportunity in these kinds of areas uh, for investors. So this, you're you're buying out the whole stake. You're taking a small stake in a in a business, becoming a board seat member. What's the uh, so not plan? always a majority, and often it's a minority, but always uh, some modicum of control. So we'll always have uh, multiple board positions, and I think the way we talk about it, Anthony, is we are. We like to be thought of as not just great investors. We like to be thought of as great operators. And we're being invited more and more to take part in investing in companies such as Kepler Chevreau, which was quite competitive. And there were a number of higher prices, but our ability to work with them to truly impact growth and impact um, uh, the business going forward. Uh, in many of our businesses, in all of our businesses, we're very active, but we're always active in support of management. And I think in a highly regulated business like financial services, you're either supporting management um, or it's not worth uh, it's not worth being an investor. So uh, in some cases, we are a majority. Uh, Panmore Gordon in the UK, we, we are a majority with a with a partner from the Middle East. Um, and in many cases, South Street Securities in the U.S. or a census, the asset management platform, were a minority but very active participant on the board. Your, your, and your business has changed or not changed or become better or worse as a result of the pandemic? So two things have happened. Um, my partner, David Seamus, and I began thinking about two years ago of as it was going you know, our investing in financial services was going well. Um, we still had about half of our first fund to, to invest. What would be the next great opportunity for Atlas Merchant Capital? And we decided at that time that the, the credit markets, 10 years after the, uh, after the 2008 crisis, zero interest rates, QE1, QE2, QE3, there was a proliferation of credit. Um, uh, covenants were becoming very light. And we thought that there would be a great opportunity in the below investment grade corporate sector, both, again, U.S., U.K., Europe. Um, we didn't know what would trigger that, uh, but we felt it was better to put the team together and to raise the capital ahead of that opportunity. Um, we hired uh, Ty Wallach, who was with Oak Hill and then, uh, and then uh, Polson for many, many years, um, uh, about nine months ago. Uh, Ty has built the team. We have the anchor investors in, and we launched this strategy three or four weeks ago. And I must say, to have completely dry powder and a whole new team with great success in the past together, um, the timing uh, was it turned out to be perfect. But we would not have known that uh, this disruption in the markets would have triggered this. Now, the Fed activity has certainly slowed um, uh, some of the some of the price adjustments that we expect to see in the fullness of time in the U.S. and the below investment grade market, uh, but we are seeing those kinds of opportunities already in Europe and the U.K. So, yeah, you, you manage Barclays. You've been in financial services for multiple decades. Uh, the structured credit markets have been hammered by this crisis. Um, is that an opportunity, Bob? You know, we think that credit 
the simplistic way to say it, Anthony, is that um, since the financial crisis in 2008, because of the uh, behavior of the Fed here, but also in Europe to some extent, and, and keep in mind in Europe, it, it got a tough start. Most people forget this, but but um, President Trichet, president of the ECB, raised rates um, during the crisis in 2008, which really put the European financial institutions on I remember. razor's edge. I mean, we would wake up from day to day and wonder who would be insolvent today. When Draghi came in, I think he was he was truly a hero and a savior. And we all remember in 2011 when he said, I'll do what I need to do, or words similar to that. I'll be here until I... I don't need to be here anymore. And solvency was kind of taken off the table. And so Europe went through a similar period of zero to negative interest rates, uh, QE after QE after QE. And it's natural that that bull market of 10, 11, 12 years in credit is going to create some bad habits. And so I would agree with you that we think patient capital looking for opportunities in the distressed end of credit is going to be one of the best investing opportunities over the next two, three, four, or five years. And it will end up um, in a place where you can potentially be the owner of some good businesses that have gotten into some real, some, some real uh, problems around the capital structure. I, 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 I want to address this with you because I think it's tied into everything because there's a, there's a political climate now uh, that is sensitized to things like pay. Uh, you experienced that in the United Kingdom. Uh, I, I can remember vividly, and I think I told you this, I was on a, a JetBlue flight back from the Bahamas on the 4th of July in 2012. And I, I saw you on CNBC. I guess you were testifying somewhere in Westminster. Maybe it was one of the houses or, or something uh, about issues related to pay and issues related to the financial services industry. Um, and and People are putting pressure, the PPP as an example. Many people in our industry didn't take it. Of course, you know, we didn't take it. Others did not take it. Uh, do you think any of that stuff that happened in Europe five or 10 years ago is spilling over into the United States? Yeah, I think it spilled over somewhat at the time. But I think the approach, Anthony, that the U.S. took versus the approach that Europe and the U.K. took um, are very, very uh, instructive. So Secretary of the Treasury Paulson, if we recall, failed in his first attempt to get a TARP. And that first TARP was more around guaranteeing some of the assets. The TARP that was eventually approved forced equity into the biggest US banks. And it was 25 to 50 million of equity put into the banks with no stigma. And, and Paulson and Congress were very clear Strong banks will take it. Weak banks will take it. We want every bank to take the equity. Now, in order to pay that back to the government and uh, not have the government as one of your shareholders, um, you know, you you first have to pass the Fed stress test. So what the what the Treasury was able to do is to force equity into the troubled financial services industry without stigma. And until they paid that money back, there were no dividends and no bonuses, which kind of solved some of the, the public fear and it was fair enough. And they could not pay it back until they cleaned up the balance sheet. In other words, passed the Fed stress test. And what, what, what Secretary Polson did is he fixed the system. 
And today, where you would have seen in 2008, City and B of A, um, close to insolvency, they're both strong, confident banks here in the U.S. in in operations around the world. And I think most people outside of the U.S. would say that the U.S. banks dominate businesses such as the investment banking business, whether it's in Europe and Asia or in the U.S. relative to the European and U.K. banks. In fact, I say with great pride, the only non-U.S. bank competing is Barclays Capital, and that was really down to the Lehman Brothers acquisition, which, which gave them um, a strong business in the U.S., stronger than any other non-U.S. firm. But most of the Europeans faced, uh, I would say, almost biblical justice, which is the approach of the regulators and the politicians in Europe was the banks caused this problem, which was true. And rather than fix the system, let's penalize the banks and penalize the bankers. And so no equity was put into the system. And even today, I mean, how many, how many capital calls have we seen Deutsche have over the years? Six, seven, eight? We see Royal Bank of Scotland, still majority owned by the UK government, still with a lot of the challenges on the balance sheet that they had 10, 11, 12 years ago. Um, no development of a capital market. So since the coronavirus, the capital markets in the U.S. have flourished. Notwithstanding the government interventions, we've seen a huge amount of private capital go into companies in the U.S. We have not seen that kind of reaction in Europe. So I think the benefit to the U.S. system of fixing the system uh, was positive. Now, do I expect to see more of these issues around income inequality and financial services industry as well as others? Absolutely. Well, I mean, I, I didn't mean to interrupt. I was just talking about there being a villain last time slowed down some of the uh, economic opportunity. Uh, and so Secretary Paulson's taken trying to not make any one individual or one bank a villain was a very smart idea. The fact that there's no villain here, Bob, the fact that it's a pandemic and it's a healthcare scare and these businesses are not doing well as a result of forced closure, uh, do you think that will help them from a governmental uh, assistance perspective? Uh, do you think that that's a, 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 a net positive? Yeah, without, without question. I think, I think the fact that everyone wants the economy to be coming back. And I don't think you can find anyone that doesn't believe that small businesses really need more help than maybe some of the big businesses. And I, you know, my personal view is if, if I could tweak something, it would be a bit more around the main street lending and getting that out there. I think you know this better than I, Anthony, this is your, this is your business, but over 50% of the employment um, in the U S is in small businesses. And I think like 60% of the expected growth in employment would come from small businesses. And one of the unintended consequences of leaving many of the large scale retailers uh, open as essential during coronavirus and closing down many of the small businesses is given you know, size and scale uh, a further competitive edge versus the small businesses. And I think as a public policy issue in the United States, we need to take care of small businesses. And as a well, public policy issue, we need to take care of jobs. And yet there will be sectors of the economy that are very different. I mean, we don't have to do a lot for technology. They're doing just fine. Uh, but what are we going to do for restaurants where, you know, most people think maybe 25% of them will never, will never open again. What do we do in the, in the travel industry? What do we do in the hotel and leisure industry? So I think we have uh, a multi-year recovery ahead of us 
based on this this uh, uh, coronavirus. And to your point, Anthony, I think uh, people's willingness to recognize that that uh, the government needs to help small businesses um, is a positive. I'm going to I'm going to flip it over to John Dorsey now, Bob. Uh, we've got questions from our uh, audience and we always want to have some participation as we get towards the end of this. So so John, fire away. And 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 by the way, Bob, your first question back to John can't be about the fake duck that he has behind him because we've already no. yeah, we've already called him out Every on that. Still, still trying to figure out what that is. But go ahead. Go ahead, Dorsey. Bob, we have a question about what impact do you think the pandemic is going to have on globalization, the distribution of commerce and trade around the world? You could talk a little bit about how you think it'll affect financial services as well, whether you, whether you think yeah. places like New York and London uh, might become slightly diminished in terms of their importance to the global uh, financial system. You might see uh, other regional financial services hubs emerge and just generally talk about globalization, nationalism, how you think the pandemic and, and the aftermath of it will affect all of that? So I think one of the things I find interesting, John, is I think from a public policy point of view, um, I don't think coronavirus has changed anything in terms of Europe versus US, um, China, trade war. What it's done is it's accelerated and in some cases galvanized trends that were already in place before 2020 and, and before coronavirus. One of those trends was the trade tensions between the US and China. And I think the rest of the world is now um, recognizing that the China of 10, 20, 30 years ago, which was an emerging economy, which was investing uh, throughout places like Africa and the Middle East, uh, China is no longer an emerging company. It's now an economic power and, and uh, increasingly a political power. And so the relationship between nations and China is not just the U.S.-China around trade. It's also coming from Asia. It's coming from the Middle East. It's coming from Europe and it's coming from Africa. So I do think we're going to see that um, have a... Uh, um, a diminishing impact on some of the uh, uh, trade flows that we've seen. And I don't mean for a second that globalization is over, and I don't mean for a second that that trade channels are going to be destroyed, but I think the momentum has, has certainly slowed down. And I think within Europe, we've seen an acceleration of the, the frustrations of you know, 21 years ago, the single currency was a, was a, was a great success. And it was going to create a capital market uh, and an ability for companies to raise money in the single currency in a way similar to the way U.S. companies were able to do it in the dollar. And only now are we seeing a move toward more fiscal integration with the uh, potential recovery plan across Europe as a result of coronavirus. But we do see some of the same uh, north-south divide debates around whether or not programs like that will be supported by euro-wide bonds or by individual nations. And I actually think the, the uh, most recent um, uh, decision uh, to have a recovery bond uh, funded by euro-wide bonds is extremely positive for Europe. Thanks for that, Bob. The next question is about banks, big banks in particular, about whether you think they're increasingly going to become utilities or agents of government policy and, and what effect that has on the sector? So it is interesting that, that the larger interconnected banks and insurance companies in the US, whether we 
think it's good or bad doesn't matter. It's just a fact. Uh, the big banks in the U.S. have become more interconnected and more intertwined with our government in the U.S. than I think any time before. Whether it's the ability of the regulator, the Fed, to raise capital requirements when times are good, reduce capital requirements to foster lending when they need it from a public policy point of view, whether it's implementing uh, PPP programs or implementing um, so many of the programs, we're seeing large asset management firms and large banks working with the Fed around the implementation of so many of their programs um, uh, around QE. Um, and the larger banks are becoming, you know, that it, it, it's ironic, John, that in 2008, 2009, politicians and regulators were determined that we would never again see too big to fail. Well, if anything, the banks are too bigger and, and, and uh, unlikely to fail even more than ever before. And that, that's why maybe a word like utility makes some sense, is that they're extremely safe, extremely steady, but are they, they the places that are nimble and agile in terms of, uh, of, of innovation that they were in the past? And it's a little bit more like the model we've seen over the years in Europe, um, where, where the, the, the largest financial institutions become more and more connected with the, with the national governments. Last question from me. We've had several questions about, you know, you've been a big investor in Africa. What do you think the challenges and opportunities are in Africa moving forward, specifically in South Africa? We've had several questions. So um, I'm, I'm more positive um, on South Africa. They have been through an incredible, incredible period. And when I was at Barclays, uh, we acquired uh, ABSA, which was, um, I believe, the number one retail banking franchise in, in, uh, in South Africa. And we had an opportunity to integrate that with Barclays businesses throughout Africa. And I think it was positive for South Africa and positive for the connection with, with the rest of Africa. Uh, because of some of the political issues and now the economic issues, South Africa has been through just a, a, a very, very challenging couple of years. I definitely see them coming out of it now uh, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very positive on that. Um, Bob, before we let you go, let's talk a little bit about UK politics and uh, one of my favorite subjects, presidential politics. Well, let's start with the UK. What do you think is going on there? How do you think uh, Prime Minister Johnson is doing? So I'm a big fan of Prime Minister Johnson. I, uh, as you know, Anthony, we've talked about this before. I thought he was a um, amazing mayor of London and did a tremendous job. Um, I was part of his mayor's fund for London and his, his initiative, which he never, never publicized, but, but um, was very focused on making sure that immigrant kids in London were able to get meals before school. And he was very focused on the youngest ages, knowing that if, if some of the kids coming into London, living in some of the poor uh, hamlets, didn't get a good start, they were falling behind forever. Um, and I think his uh, leadership through this unbelievably challenging time of no one had a good solution on Brexit, and he led the UK to a good position, I think, over the last um, months. Uh, and now running head into coronavirus, just as, as the UK was coming out of it. I do know, uh, when I talk to my colleagues in Panmore Gordon, um, it's a UK um, uh, investment bank that serves just UK middle market companies. Um, 
the, the private capital in the UK is mobilizing very quickly, and we're doing a lot of equity raising for the, for the small and middle-sized businesses. That wasn't happening in 2019. It wasn't happening in 2018. So I think below the surface of um, it's hard to read all the negatives around coronavirus. And listen, it's very, very serious. I don't mean to minimize it. But below that and not getting the headlines, uh, the financial, the, 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 the small businesses and small companies in the UK um, are becoming better capitalized uh, and more competitive. So I'm, I'm pretty positive on the UK going forward. So I'm, I'm not going to put you on the spot in presidential politics, but I'm going to ask the question in the following way. Uh, do you think it matters from an economic perspective who the next president is, or do you think that the overarching moves of the Fed are going to be the deciding factor directly on the economy? I think it matters a lot. And I think there's an argument that starts with it doesn't, which I understand, Anthony, because I think no matter who is elected, the Democrats or Republicans, we're going to have very low interest rates. We're going to be very focused on stimulus to get the economy back. So a lot of the actions that have taken place already are not going to be reversed. Uh, whether it's Democrats or Republicans, they're going to be very, very focused on making sure this economy recovers. I think the difference will be significant in down the road of how we pay for it. And as we know, I mean, simplistically, the Democrats would typically be more prone to look at taxes and the Republicans would be more prone to look at spending. Um, this is not a normal Republican um, presidency right now. So I, I don't know how that would exactly play out. But I think to say that there's no difference in terms of who's elected is, is looking way too much at the short term and not enough at the medium to long term. Okay, so what do you think happens? If I look at the polls, um, I, I would tell you two things. Um, from past history, um, we're only in June. So we've seen a lot of things change between, uh, between June and Election Day in November, so I give that caveat. But it's quite clear that the trend in the last few weeks has been for, for um, uh, Biden's lead to increase uh, uh, significantly. Well, I think one of the problems the president is having is if you look at the demographics, women over the age of 50, uh, he has the widest gap there of any president in 50 years. So, you know, but it is, you know, 150 days out. And what I know, based on my life experience, Bob, 150 days is like 500 years in Trump world. So I'm, I'm not going to make a prediction, but yeah, we both know that the, the data, the data is uh, underwhelming. It has to be concerning the Trump campaign. Uh, I got one last question for you, uh, and then we're going to turn it back over to John to sign off. Um, but I, I, I want you to address the younger people that are in financial services right now. Uh, maybe they missed the 2008 crisis. Maybe they, they caught that if they're in their early 30s. But talk, talk to the guys on this uh, webinar with us that are in their early 20s. Um, and they're going through the pandemic, they're working remotely. Uh, what's your advice for them? Oh, Anthony, that is a great question. Um, you know, one of the things I've been doing, uh, Atlas Merchant Capital is not a big, big firm. We have an office in New York, an office in London. But uh, one of the things I've been doing during this period is trying to have um, um, uh, Zooms, uh, or we use Google Hangout, but in our case, Google Hangouts, with as many of the young uh, professionals as possible, just to have a one-on-one -on -one and connect. 
And um, as challenging as it's been for you, you've been with your family. As challenging as it's been for me, I've been with my family. A lot of these young professionals are, you know, maybe in a, in a, a studio apartment in New York without a lot of places to go. And I think it's been incredibly challenging. So my advice is um, hang in and you, you just don't know this today, but everyone's going to be looking back at this period and how it, how it plays out over the next year or so as so instrumental in terms of the future of our economy and the experience that you're going to get over the next year or two is going to be extraordinary. I also think that in terms of financial services, looking only at the big platforms, the big banks, the big insurance companies, the big asset management firms, miss the phenomenal opportunity of some of the smaller firms. And I think financial services is still um, a great place to be for young professionals. Well, I greatly appreciate your time today, Mr. Diamond. Thank you. Uh, uh, I hope we can get you back on uh, as things start to unfold in the economy. I'm going to turn it back over to John Darcy, but we really appreciate you being on today, Bob. And uh, I look forward to hopefully seeing you face to face at some point. I hope we catch up. And Anthony, thank you for doing this for all of us. It's great to have this program going during the coronavirus. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. 